this morning, if you have a Bible, open up to John chapter 17. Uh, I know that says Luke 15, but uh, <laughs> it's John 17 this morning. The Luke 15 was last week. Um, and, and this morning, uh, we are going to be looking at what it means to be a follower of Christ and to make followers as we're going through this series on being a disciple and what that means. This morning, we are going to focus on church family, its life in community. And as you're turning there, um, I'm going to pray for us and ask that God would uh, direct and lead this time. Lord, we uh, need your grace. God, I need uh, your, um, your grace and your Holy Spirit to lead and guide us, to teach us. Uh, Lord, give the words um, that I teach life. God, help me to teach the things that you have uh, given me to teach and things, Lord, that uh, you have not given, Lord, that those things would uh, fade away. Father, we pray that you would help us to listen actively, to not only hear uh, words and uh, audible sounds, but Lord, that they would be uh, words that, that change our lives, God, that we would listen with a heart of openness to you. Lord, whether uh, we have known you for a long time or whether we are seeking, we're, we're praying that your spirit would speak to us, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. In the book of Hebrews, you're turning to John 17, but in the book of Hebrews, it says this, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What the Bible teaches uh, is this, we're not to forsake getting together um, to worship God, the gathering of God's people. On Wednesday night, uh, the youth are studying the book of James, and uh, uh, James is writing, and it says, to those that are scattered abroad, because when persecution hit, uh, the church got scattered. They had to go to different places, different cities. They had to leave. We have the opportunity to gather together, and what the Bible teaches is this. We're not to forsake this. This is, should be something that is special to us. It should be something that we look forward to. Um, when, when I think about persecution and I think about difficulties in, in churches, I remember um, in the Philippines, this, um, this one family, they, they got to the church and uh, I looked at them and they arrived on what's called a tricycle. Uh, in the Philippines, a tricycle is a motorcycle that has a sidecar and uh, they call it a tricycle. And so they, the family gets there to the church. It's a family of seven. Okay, I just want you to think about this. The driver of the motorcycle doesn't count. He's the taxi. He's the driver. So you have the driver of the motorcycle. You have one of the children sitting in front of the driver. You have the husband that is actually one of the other kids on the back. You have the, the mom that is in the sidecar with as many kids as they could fit. And the dad standing on a little platform on the back of the sidecar holding on. So they, they get to the church and, and uh, a, a long ways to get to the church and um, a lot of money when they don't have enough money, what do they do is they walk and they get to the church. And I, I just saw a, a love of gathering together so that they would be willing to go through inconvenience to get to a place where there are people that have a common belief. They're willing to go through uh, expense and time and difficulty. Um, you know, it, it props to you guys because it's a nine o'clock Sunday. So in our culture, like this is as far as we go. Wow, nine o'clock. I really, man, I pushed the limit on that one. But, but what I'm sharing is this. It, it's so easy just to forsake that gathering together. And there's a, a trend in our culture today where it's really popular 
to say, I love Jesus, but I hate his people. I love Jesus, but I don't like the church. I love Jesus and I worship God on my own, but I don't need church anymore. And that's a trend that is, is growing. It's this, um, this whole thing of spiritual, but not religious. You know, I consider myself spiritual, but not religious in, in a lot of ways. Uh, but it, it's the Bible. God tells us when we gather together, there's something supernatural that takes place in this room whether we realize it or not. And so we are going to look at what that means. And the reason why I put this life groups here, it's so important that when it, it comes to living as a body of Christ, the reason why we are doing these life groups, not only you know generation one for the young adults on Monday nights, but uh, the seniors, um, not seniors in high school, but uh, seniors and seniors in training uh, gathered together on Thursday. Um, we, we have home fellowships that meet together. The reason why we do that is because all of the commandments in God's word, love one another, serve one another, be patient with one another, forgive one another. How is that done? With one another. In isolation, you can't do the one another's. You can't do those things when you're by yourself. And so we grow together, we, we learn, and, and we're not perfect by any means. It's not a perfect community. But I'll tell you what, as we go through this, I, I think that you'll really see that it's a blessing because it is the community of God. Last week, we looked at some of the marks of a disciple. Um, we love Jesus more in Luke 15. Remember, we looked at when Jesus said, you can't be my disciple and love your father and mother, your, 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 even your own life more than me. In fact, the word that he used, that we use in our translation to make it strong enough in our language is he said, unless you hate your father and mother and, and even your own life, you can't be my disciple. So we looked at a disciple, a follower of Christ, means this relationship is stronger, more important than any other relationship. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, I, I'm glad you're here this morning because maybe you're wondering why. Like, why would I do that? Why would I forsake other relationships compared to my relationship with Jesus? Now, he's not saying leave those other relationships. He's just saying compared to your love for Jesus, they should fall short. And, and our love for God should be primary. So we're going to look at that. Uh, we looked at being a disciple. Jesus said that you have to die to yourself. Remember that he said, if, there's the conditional, if anyone wants to be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. Because if I don't want to be his disciple, I'll never do that. I'll, why would I deny self, right? Because we live in a self-centered, self-serving environment and culture today. There is a, a clinical diagnosis uh, today in modern psychology. What do they call that? Someone that is absorbed with self? They call it narcissism. It comes from uh, the, the myth of narcissist looking at himself in the, the reflection right there in the pond and uh, falling in love with himself. And yet our culture, that used to be a bad thing. Pride in that way used to be a bad thing. Now it's such a good thing. The, the world, the culture just says, hey, it's all about you. You just, it, it, it's about flaunting it and loving yourself to the degree that you're self-centered. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you have to die to self. If you want to follow me, you have to forsake self. Um, yes, uh, last week we looked at finishing what we start. Remember that Jesus said about counting the cost. Uh, the, the king that goes out to battle, you want to make sure that you have enough to finish that. The person that builds a tower, the, con the contractor, remember we looked at how you have to have uh, enough to finish. And then we looked at surrender. You have to be willing to surrender 
uh, to give up, to give up dreams, to give up hopes, to say, God, whatever you want in my life. We looked at purity and righteousness, and then a disciple makes disciples. A disciple is not simply someone that comes into a room that learns the things of God and uh, an academic setting. A disciple is not a, a necessarily a professor in a classroom, although that could be a part of it. Being here could be a part of it. But the definition that Jesus set out at the very beginning when he called the initial disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. I'm gonna teach you how to go out and reach out to others as well. So if I'm not reaching out to anyone else, then really I'm not being the kind of disciple that Jesus said that he wants to make. So this morning, when we look at all of these aspects, and, and I just encourage you to try to, make, uh, to try to make it here for every one of these, to try to invite some people out, to try to um, give the website out, to um, send people the links when you get the Calvary Connection during the week, uh, forward that to someone else, because we are looking at uh, what it means to be on mission next week, and, and spiritual disciplines that a disciple is not someone that just comes and it's passive, but you spend time alone with God. What does that look like? And understanding the Bible, like what the Old Testament, what is that? Is that relevant for us today? How does, how does that speak to us in the New Testament? And we're, we're going to look at loving God and family relationships and, and all of these other things. But this morning, when we look at disciple church family, I want to tell you that I'm going to show you some things. We're going to look at some things, first of all, that church family and unity in the body of Christ and community is not. And I think it's gonna be surprising because I think some of these things are things that we think that fellowship is based on. These are things that fellowship is not, Christian fellowship in Christ is not based on these things. I'm not saying that these things are bad. I'm just saying it's not the basis of our fellowship. All right, uh, Frank Gore is uh, one of my favorite athletes in, in all of professional sports. And Jim Harbaugh is probably my favorite coach in sports. Um, I, I took my boys, as I, I shared with you, to a, a 49er football game. We were standing in line as soon as we got into uh, the stadium. And as we're standing in line, this guy comes up to me and uh, he's like, hey, what's up, bro? And he, he goes like this and, and uh, you know, I give him a high five. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he starts talking like we've known each other since we were six years old, you know? And, and you know, I didn't mind that. That was a cool thing. There's this camaraderie. There's this, you know, uh, a common goal. If you've ever been a part of a team, you know that sometimes that common goal, that the, what it feels like uh, when people leave sports and they look back at it, when they interview them, what do you miss the most? You know what they say? It's the camaraderie. It's the camaraderie of your teammates being around the other athletes, the other players. But, but fellowship in Christ is greater than that, and it's different than that. It, it, it might include having a common goal, but that is not the basis of our fellowship. Um, Christian fellowship is not based on common interests. Um, I did a Google search for click. And this is what, the picture that came up. You know, it's like these, you know, they're walking around, these, these girls, and it could be guys, but you know what a, a click is like? And sometimes people will say about a church, they'll say it felt clickish. I remember as a kid growing up, I didn't know what the word click meant. But you, you understand that a, a click is a group of people that feel like we are together 
and, and, and our circle is a tight circle. You can't get into our circle because we have these common things. And, uh, and sometimes it, it's based on common interests. And most, most of the time, if you look at a high school and you look at cliques, the cliques that hang out together look alike. I, I remember the movie when I was in high school that came out, The Breakfast Club. And I just remember how there was a, a jock, you know, there was an outcast, there was a geek, there were all these different parts. And I remember watching that movie and coming back to my school and looking around going, there's that group, there's all these different groups. And, and Christian fellowship is not simply based on common interests. Although, let me say this, that many times what will happen in a church, a local congregation, is that sometimes congregations will start to get like that. And I think that um, sometimes with good intention, a congregation might start. Let me give you an example. Um, an ethnic congregation might start because they're reaching out to pre- people of a certain ethnicity that don't understand English or don't, um, you know, it, it, American culture is a second culture. Let me tell you the danger in that at times is that at times the second generation of kids that grow up in America, they feel like I don't belong, I, I don't know where I belong because uh, you know, I'm, I'm living in two cultures. My daughter goes to a, a church called Reality in L.A. In fact, it was the church that uh, I, I researched and I kind of found out before she was going to go to USC. And we went there on a Sunday morning. And the whole church at the time was probably between 18 and 28 years old. Like the whole church. Uh, at the time when we were going, there were probably about 600 people there on a Sunday morning. And I remember taking um, our kids into children's ministry and like our kids were the only kids in a church of 600. It's like, oh, wow, there's people with kids, you know, like that's a novel idea. And, and, and it's because they're reaching out to this demographic. But unless they expand beyond that in the future, which I think that they are doing, which is a good thing, unless they extend beyond that, you have a, a microcosm of the body of Christ that's, that's only a slice of it, but not the whole thing. The whole body of Christ is really diverse. In fact, Christian fellowship is not based on demographics. Um, in, in the show Friends that ran for a, a long time, there were a group, group of friends that all lived together. They were all friends, and they were all about the same age. Let me tell you something else they had in common. They were all kind of beautiful, right? They're, they're no ugly friends. You know, they didn't have like the ugly duckling on friends, you know, and, and they didn't have that person there. They, they kind of flocked together. They probably social economic status, uh, 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 you know, likes, all of these things. And yet Christian fellowship is not based on having everything in common. And I think that sometimes we make a mistake when we think, oh, I finally found a place of real Christian fellowship because everybody is just like me. That's really not necessarily what heaven is going to look like, right? We're going to be shocked at at all of the different tribes and and people uh, that are together. And and finally, Christian fellowship is not based on a common enemy. Actually, there's there's one more. It's not based on a common enemy. Um, (laughs) Braveheart, I I love this picture. I don't know about you. Maybe you think that I'm violent, but I, I love this picture. That giant sword, that, that's the sword that when I left uh, Calvary Chapel Gilroy to come over here, that Justin gave me a, a brave heart sword because he knew that I loved it so much. I, it, to me, it represents the word of God and a, a posse of men together and they have this common enemy. That's not 
the basis, though, of Christian fellowship. We have a common enemy as believers. Uh, Our adversary, the devil, goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But our common... Our common interests, our, our fellowship, our unity is not based on our common enemy. Remember this, Jesus was a common enemy to the Pharisees, to the Sadducees, to the Romans, to the religious people, to the secular people. And that brought them at the trial of Jesus together in quote unquote fellowship and unity because they all hated Jesus and he was a common enemy to their way of life. No, Our Christian fellowship is not even based on meeting together at a common place. Now, yes, did the Bible say not to forsake the gathering together of brethren? Absolutely. But our fellowship is not based on this place that we are meeting together right now. Now, we come here and we enjoy fellowship. But what would happen if persecution hit in our country and they said you can no longer gather together in public places like this? Would that be the end of fellowship? I'll tell you what, um, churches in other countries, Christians in other countries worry about us because they believe that if persecution hit us the way that it's hit them, that we don't, uh, we don't have those things in place as a culture of, of Christians today that we would be able to withstand some of that persecution. So, John 17. We are going to look at what Christian fellowship and unity Um, The church family is based upon. And I want to begin with verses one through five. And it says this. Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. As you have given him authority over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. Now, I want you to hear this. The first thing that unites us is God's glory. What breaks down unity, what breaks down fellowship is man's glory, people's glory. When, when we try to one-up ourselves to other people, it's human nature to try, to try to size one another up. Where do I fit into the social strata? Where do I, I fit into the, the structure? And, and if you ever listen to conversations, sometimes conversations are competitions, who has the best story? You know, who has the most painful experience? Who has the happiest experience? Who, who has done the most? Who, and and you, you hear these things, and sometimes we're looking for our own glory, and yet what we see is that the basis of our fellowship, our unity, is that it's all about God's glory. It's when we glorify, Father, Jesus is praying. And by the way, when they say the Lord's Prayer, usually they, they talk about our Father who art in heaven. We call that the Lord's Prayer. That was a model template to say this is how you should pray. But when I look at the Lord's Prayer coming from his own heart, I look at this high priestly prayer as just, if you want to know how to pray Jesus' heart, read John 17. I'm not saying don't read in Matthew 5, you know, his model prayer as well. But listen to this. Jesus says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may also glorify you. We're unified when we bring glory to Christ. When we... Um, give him the proper respect that is due to his name, when we worship him, when we say that he's worthy, when we put him in a place of preeminence and prominence in our lives, that's, that's when he's glorified. And when a bunch of people are together doing that, it is amazing at how quickly unity builds. In fact, if you've ever been in a place where you haven't really met these Christians, you've just met them, 
but you go into a time of worship and you start singing to Jesus, you start singing about Jesus, and before you know it, you feel kind of unified, you feel connected to the people that you're singing with. See, singing is not the only way that we worship, but I really believe it's a big part of worship. And then eternal life, it says in verse three, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Eternal life, um, when we are saved, and what that means is we were on our own. We were going our own way. We were um, set for separation from God, just doing our own thing. When God reached out to us, it is a great picture of community because Jesus He left heaven to come to earth. You ever think about the incarnation that way? If I were Jesus, and I just think, if I were to come into our world, where would I come? Where where would I go to? And what era of history would I go to? Some of you won't go camping because you think it's insanitary. Like, why would you leave the comfort of your house to go sleep outside, to go to the bathroom in the woods, and to do, you know, that's, that's disgusting. Jesus left heaven to come to earth at a time when there there were no flush toilets. He came to a difficult time when there was persecution. He came for a specific purpose. And in the incarnation, what it shows us is that God wants us to go out to people to reach them wherever they are, even if that's uncomfortable. And when we have eternal life, when we are followers of Christ and we understand that he has died for our sins, there, there is something about that commonality that is a basis of our unity. In verses six through eight, notice that our fellowship should be based on God's word. It says this, I have manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have kept your word and they have known all things which you have given me are from you. For I've given to them what? What does it say? The words which you have given me. And they have received them and have known surely that I came forth from you and they have believed that you sent me. This, this book, this, um, this incredible compilation of really 66 different books is what we call the Bible. Over 40 different authors written over 1,500 years, four continents, three languages, uh, authors from different walks of life, fishermen, uh, statesmen, uh, leaders, all of the, every, everywhere in between. This is the basis of how we know what it is like to be a follower of Christ, to be a Christian. Without the word of God, our fellowship is lacking because notice what Jesus said. He said, you, you, you gave them my, your words and, and they have kept your word And I gave them the words which you have given me and they received them and they believed. The basis of our fellowship is also the word of God. That's why we're together right now. There there are much more talented people than me. Um, Have you ever seen the commercials to the the show America's Got Talent? They do crazy things. You know, they they drink milk in one nostril and then they spit it out their eye. You know, they 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 do they juggle, they sing, they they tame animals, they do all these things. Way more entertaining, 
funnier, more, uh, if you go to TED Talks, more informative than, than things that you would, you know, fascinating. The thing that holds us in common is we have God's word. And when we open up God's word and we start to learn together, it, it brings us to a place where, where, wow, I'm learning the same thing that you're learning. I'm hearing the same thing that you're hearing. I'm being challenged with the same thing that you're being challenged with. And that's why life groups are so great because you get together and you wrestle with those things and talk about those things together. And it's important that when it comes to the basis of our fellowship, if I'm not in God's word for myself, I I sometimes don't have anything to share. It it would be like, can you imagine four of us getting together saying, hey, we'll have a potluck. Let's all get together together. And imagine we all show up to the potluck, four of us, and none of us bring anything. So, hey, uh, we're here for this potluck. What'd you bring? Nothing. What about you? Nothing. Nothing. You know, like none of us brought anything. And if the fellowship, part of our unity is based on God's word, but I don't study it. I don't read it. There's nothing in it that I, I have wrestled with. I come to the fellowship potluck, so to speak, of getting together with other believers, and sometimes I have nothing to offer. Sometimes only one person will bring, sometimes three people will bring something, and one person won't. And by the way, for the agape feast, I'm just saying, if you're a visitor or something, eat. You know, we want you to eat, come and enjoy the food, but next time bring some. So when it, when it comes to fellowship together like that, I could glean from three other believers that have been spending time with God's word, and I'm listening, and they're wrestling with God's word, and being encouraged. And I could glean from that, but I'll tell you that part of fellowship is I want to bring something. And isn't it a blessing for those of you that bring something to share? When you bring something to a potluck with food, oh, you've got to try. How many times have you heard this? You've got to try this. This is my famous X marks, you know, this is my famous stew, my famous cake. This is a recipe that I got from a friend of mine. This is, I've been working on this recipe because we want to bring something to share. As Christians, When I read God's word, guess what? I get something to share with someone else. It's not just for me. Devotions, quiet time is not just for me. It's so that during the day, I can say, oh, look at this. This is what I want to share with you because God showed this to me. The next thing is in verse nine. It says, I don't know, I'm losing connectivity on this. If we go to the next slide. In verse 9, it says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. Do you hear Jesus' prayer? Lord, help them to be one. Father, help them to be one as we are one. How, how are Jesus and the Father unified? Completely, completely. In fact, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen what? The Father. And so when we see what Jesus does, when we, when we hear Jesus's words, we know what God is like, God the Father is like, because we know what God the Son is like. Jesus is praying that we would be one as he and the Father are one. And notice what he says. He um, says in verse 12, while I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, who is that? Judas, right? Now, by the way, when it comes to fellowship, don't try to figure out who Judas is. 
Um, when, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, what question did they ask? Lord, is it I? They didn't say, Lord, is it him? See, sometimes when we're together, when we, we, is it him? Is it her? You know, they must be the ones. It's so important that um, we, don't, we don't try to be the judge of someone's eternal destination. We don't, we don't know those things. Um, sometimes when it comes to fruit, someone says that they're a Christian, but their lifestyle is otherwise. Yeah, we know them by their fruits. But still, we need to be very careful in, in setting judgment, eternal judgment. God knows. And in God's grace, we, were, we are going to be shocked. I think the thief on the cross is a great example of that, of someone that doesn't have time to go back and live a good life, but he has repented and he believes in what Jesus has done. And it is so important that we understand this. But notice what it says in verse 13. It says, but now I come to you and these things I speak in the world. Why? that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus, why does he pray this? Why does he speak this? That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. One of the basis of Christian unity and fellowship in the family of God is joy. Did you hear that? It's joy. Joy should mark our gathering together. Joy should mark our lives as believers. And yet, sometimes Christians can be like the, I love sucking on lemons club. You know, and it's like, hey, why don't you be a part of us? You know, and, 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 and like, we just get together and we talk about how bad the world is. That's what we do. It's our fellowship, man. We just, we talk about politics and how, how bad the culture is getting. And we talk about the problems in church. And we talk about that pastor. And we talk about that person and that church that doesn't do things the way that we do. And why don't you come join us? <laughs> you know, you, you too could be one of us. No, thank you. You know, it, it <laughs> Jesus is praying for us that we might have joy. And, and joy doesn't mean happiness all the time. Christians go through struggles. We go through depression. We go through difficulty. Let me tell you the difference. Joy is a fruit of the spirit that happens, that is produced in us when we draw near to God and we realize how much he has done for us, how much he's blessed us. And that even in the midst of the trial, it's not worthy to be compared with the blessings that God gives us both now and in the future. And it brings joy. And it, it, it so encourages me when I talk to someone that is going through just incredibly difficult circumstances. A lot of you are in that place. And I've talked to some of you. Some of you have health things that are, that are just debilitating, some life-threatening. Some of you have been through financial crisis, unemployed. Some of you have been homeless. And yet what I could see at times is that when there's joy, I'm blown away. Where does that joy come from? How is that produced? And when it's produced in Christ, it brings this common fellowship that people would, would say to us, would ask you, especially people that don't know the Lord at your work, at your school, people that, you know, you just got demoted, you just got, you know, this circumstance in your life, something happened to you, and yet you still have joy. Why do you have joy? And it causes them to ask, what is the hope that you have? What is there in your life? And when we're together, that joy of the Lord, remember that Nehemiah, when they were building the walls, they got tired. They wanted to quit. They were in a place of, 
of just trudging through mud. You ever get to that place in your Christian walk where life is hard and ministry is hard and, and they were discouraged and Nehemiah reminded them, what did he say? The joy of the Lord is your strength. No joy, no strength. When I don't have joy, I'm very, very weak as a Christian. In fact, when I don't have joy, I'm more susceptible to temptation. When I don't have joy, my, my devotional life, my private time with God just feels like drudgery. When there's no joy, I don't feel like ministering to anyone else. And it's not a guilt trip. It's just, Lord, please restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remember David prayed that in Psalm 51? He said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Then I will teach sinners your way. Then I will do these things in ministry. Then I will, I will praise your name in front of others and people will come to know. Then it, it, it's, but I have to have the joy of my salvation before I could share that joy with anyone else. In the world, but not of it, verses 14 through 19 says this. It says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I, I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Now, part of our unity, part of our community as Christians is this. We are in the world, but not of the world. Um, I remember when I first uh, started to teach at a public high school, um, looking at how, how this could be my ministry, how this could be my outreach at this public school. I met a guy named Burt Rapp. Uh, Burt Rapp had been teaching at South Hills High School for probably almost 40 years by the time I started teaching. I was talking to Burt, and um, I don't remember how it came up. I don't remember how the conversation started, but I found out that he was a Christian. And when I found out that Burt Rapp was a Christian, we started to talk, and one day, um, instead of going to the teacher's lounge, we went over to his classroom, and we, I was just asking him questions, he was teaching a class at a public high school called the Bible as Literature. And I, I just remember being fascinated by this. Like, they let you teach that class? And he said, yeah. He said, I, I, um, I started teaching this class years ago, and so far they haven't shut it down. And, uh, and he shared with me this story about, uh, for him, one of the scariest days for him as a teacher. He had a student in his class that got um, really um, hooked you know, into drugs and just addicted and, and really struggling. And one day after class, Burt Rapp was sharing with this student. No one else was around. The student came into the classroom. He was asking some questions. And Burt felt like his heart was beating in his chest and felt like God told him to ask this student, have you ever received Christ into your life? Do you know who Jesus is? So Burt Rapp realizes his job is on the line, but he knows the Holy Spirit is prompting him. And he says, hey, have you ever considered asking Jesus to come into your life? The kid says, no, I haven't. And Bert shares with him the gospel. He tells him about how he could, he could just ask God to come into his life. He could be forgiven. He'll, he'll give you a new life. Um, he'll, he'll change you. He'll help you. He loves you. Um, but right now you're separated from God. And right now, if you don't receive Christ, 
you'll, be, you'll go to hell. If you reject him, this offer is here. You can't say you've never heard it now. Now you've heard it. His heart is beating. He's nervous. This student prays and receives Christ. Let me tell you the greater danger in all of this for Burt Rapp, that was the principal's son. Public school, public high school. He said, Matt, I was so scared. And that principal never brought anything up to me, never said anything. Um, his son started going to church. His son got off of drugs. His son really started, you know, went to college, got kind of his life in order. He said when that principal retired at his retirement speech, he started to cry and he was thanking people. When he got to Burt Rapp, he said, and I just want to thank Burt Rapp because he saved my son. Now, I don't know if the principal was saved, but he saw that something had changed in his son. So when Burt Rapp is telling me this, I'm getting really excited about it. I'm just, I'm blown away. So Burt Rapp, his schedule gets reduced. He gets towards retirement. A few years later, you know, I'm, I'm there at the school and Burt Rapp had stopped teaching the Bible as literature. And I'm, I'm feeling a calling to be a pastor and I'm struggling with, I love my ministry at the school, but I feel like God's called me to be a pastor and I'm going through this. One of the other teachers who is a Christian comes to my principal and says, hey, you know what, Matt is teaching at a Bible college. You know, he's, he's probably gonna start, you know, uh, going into full-time ministry. Uh, he's one of my coaches and uh, I would just... You know, is there any way you could reduce his load? So I didn't know this, and I was going to go into my principal to tell my principal, hey, I want to go part-time. So I went in, I was talking to my principal, and she said, well, and my suggestion was going to be this. Can I teach the Bible as literature as one of the classes? Because that way when I'm studying for my Bible classes, I'm also studying for this class, and I know I teach it differently. And before I could get it out of my mouth, she said, Matt, you know, uh, Steve Bogan told me, you know, you're working really hard, you're teaching at night, you're, you're doing all these things, and uh, I just want to kind of keep you around and reduce your, your workload somewhat. Is there any way that you could take some of those things that you're teaching at that Bible college and do a class like Burt Rapp used to do called The Bible is Literature? And I just, I just about did cartwheels in her office. Like, I could, I could not believe it. The reason I share that with you is when it comes to being in the world but not of it, God didn't call me at that point in my life to leave teaching. He called me for a while to still stay in teaching. And while I was in teaching in a public school, I would still teach English and I would still coach track. I would still coach football. But you know what? Some of those students that I had to this day are the students that write to me and call me saying, coach, I went to college because of you. But not only that, I became a Christian. I have one student that is in the Navy. He's been in the Navy for 20 years now. And he said, coach, I just want to let you know that when you took me to Promise Keepers with you and I walked down to receive Christ, that changed my life. I want to let you know that. And my fellowship with Burt Rapp and the other Christians was that much stronger because we saw ourselves as missionaries that are in a common place. We were teachers for the Covina Valley Unified School District. That was our employment. But in reality, our vocation was we were missionaries. And we were missionaries in the public sector because we were in the world, but we were not of it. There was something different about us, about our hopes, about what we desired. Now, I had, I had great fun with the other coaches and teachers that weren't believers. And we wouldn't isolate and always meet in a room. And here's the problem when it comes to Christian unity. Sometimes we could look at this being in the world and not of it. Sometimes Christians are of the world, but not in it. So sometimes Christians can be 
of the world, like fully assimilating into all of the same things that the world does. If the world does something, if culture does something that goes against what I see a disciple is to do, what the value and ethic of the Bible and Jesus is, I need to make a decision. Which kingdom am I living for? And even though I'm with these people doing these things and hanging out, once they cross the line and they're starting to do something or talk about something that is ungodly, at that point, I need to not participate. But it doesn't mean that I break friendship with them and I never talk to them and I isolate myself. And the only people that I know are Christians because I don't want to contaminate myself with the world. And we have Christian barbecues and we go to Christian movies and Christian concerts and watch Christian TV. And we talk in Christian fellowship circles and we only go to Christian churches and only Christian schools and we don't talk to them. That is not what Jesus is saying unity is based on. Our fellowship means that sometimes we get so beat up in the world that when we're together, it's a balm. It's a soothing time together of just saying, wow, it's hard out there. How are you doing in the mission? Man, I'm struggling right now. How's it going? Man, you know, I've been tempted this last week because even though I know I'm a missionary, man, there's some temptations that I'm facing or, or there's some persecution or some difficulties. And that causes fellowship to actually grow and to be strengthened. So we are to be in the world, but not of it. And then the hope of heaven in verse 24. It says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name and will declare it. And the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So when we look at this hope of heaven, uh, we're, we're looking at being together, and yet in the midst of it, notice that we're unified in Christ's love, but the hope of heaven doesn't cause us to check out from the world. doesn't call us to, to leave the world. Um, the hope of heaven is something that we have to realize something. We are not there yet. Uh, you know what, I think I... I skipped, uh, I skipped the last point, unity in Christ's love, where he's talking about um, those of you you sent, you've loved them as you have loved me, and then the hope of heaven. And these two go together because Jesus prays for those who will believe in him in future tense. And he says, they will believe through the word that I have given to them, through their word. Uh, read with me what this says in verse 20. It says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you. They also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, I want you to hear this. Jesus prays for those who will believe in him in the future. Now, who is that? That's us. Jesus prayed for us, to those that will believe. It's important that part of our outreach to our community, part of our evangelism, part of our um, making disciples is to pray for people. When you pray for people, I think that you will be amazed, and I have been amazed, when I pray for someone that is not a believer, that God somehow gives me the opportunity to share with them. 
I, I could think about all these people that aren't believers and think, man, I, I just, that would be great if they were Christians. Sometimes God still gives those opportunities, but I'll tell you what, I've seen it over and over and over again when I specifically pray for those people. All of a sudden, I find myself at a place where I'm having a conversation and God opens up the door for me to share with them. I just encourage you to, to do that because notice he says that they will believe in him. They will believe in me through their word. So it's now our word. It's now your testimony. It's now my testimony. The whole thing about um, the Billy Graham outreach for that Hope Sunday, and we, we have people that have taken the DVDs home. It's not only so that you could show a DVD in your home and say, hey, what did you think about that? But so that you can share, I also have this hope. And when you say, I also have this hope, they're not just watching the person on the screen. There's someone that sits with them in the flesh, incarnation with them in a sense, living amongst them because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. And when they see that God has done something in us and we live in that way, Jesus sent us into the world to be the salt and the light. So when he does that, we have this hope of heaven. Let me close with this. This hope of heaven that we have, we cannot, um, we cannot be deceived into thinking that we are there yet. We are not in heaven yet. And one of the problems is that sometimes we either long for heaven so much that we, we stop reaching out to people that aren't going there yet. Now, I, I want Jesus to come back. I want to, I want to go to heaven, but I want to do it in his time, not my time. And in, in God's time, I want to live as long as I can and have as much of an impact on this world as I can. And when he's done and it's time to go home, I want to go home and I'm looking forward to going home. And if Jesus should come back and bring the church with him, I'm excited about that. But until that time, I want to be useful and I want to reach out to those that don't know. Because as much as we say, God, I just wish God would come back right now. Aren't you glad he didn't come back before you came to know him? You know, it's like, hey, we want you... As soon as we get saved, it's like, now you could come back. Okay, now, you know, it's time. But Jesus wants us to care about others. So what breaks down unity? The things that break down unity are pride. When, when pride gets in the way, when we are easily offended and we hold on to the offense. Now, let me, let me say this when it comes to friendship you probably have some friends that you are no longer friends with because you did something to offend them or they did something to offend you. And it's very possible that those people that you are no longer friends with are Christians. They are followers of Christ, saved by the same blood, forgiven, uh, forgiven just like you have been forgiven. Now, let me ask you this question. When is the last time that you have offended God? In your thoughts, your actions, God told you to do something, you didn't do it. You, you fell into some sin, you went your own way. And let me ask you this. When you come to God and you ask for forgiveness, does he still hold the grudge? No. The Bible teaches this. John, who was one of Jesus' apostles, who was boiled in oil. I mean, that's how much he loved Jesus. He was boiled in oil for the sake of following Christ. He, he talked about these things. And John, he, he wrote about this, 
this understanding when you read First John that, that we love because he has loved us. So we should love one another. If we say that I love God and yet hate our brother, we lie and the truth is not in us. You know what? If the world looks at us and says, hey, you know what? We play on the same team and we forgive each other. Hey, you know what? We have a common enemy and we're closer than you guys are. Hey, you know what? We go shopping together and we have more fellowship, so to speak, than you guys have. Then you know what? It, it really, um, it's a blight on, on the name of Christ. Jesus said, all people will know that you're my disciples, my followers, by what? Your love for what? For one another. And so, yes, we're different. Yes, there are some friends that you are going to be closer to. They're probably going to like a lot of the same things that you like. They probably have some common things. But I'll tell you what, there should be something supernatural about a church that is supernatural. And by the way, we are a supernatural church. Not saying that angel dust is going to fall from the, the sky or anything like that. But what I am saying is this, we are a supernatural church because we have been born again by the Holy Spirit. We've been regenerated. We believe in God. We still believe that God does miracles. We still believe that God changes lives. We still believe that Jesus heals people. We still believe that God is in, in control. We believe in a God. It's more than just a mantra of logical things or principles to live by. We believe in a real God that is living. And if we believe in a real God that is living, and if he is really alive, shouldn't there be something different about us as a family of God that would compel people in the world to say, I want to be a part of that? Why do people sign up for the Marines? The few, the proud, the Marines. I want to be a part of that. You know, why do people come out for a team? Hey, if you come out for this team, it's going to be really hard. We're going to do something called Hell Week. I want to be a part of that. And, and we all want to be a part of these things that are different because there's something different about that. And in, shouldn't we be the group of people that the world looks at and says, there's something different about them. I want to be a part of that. Now, the bottom line is this as we close. There are hindrances to unity like pride, um, isolation and dreaming. Don't We need solitude with God, time alone with God, but not isolation from God's people. Do you hear that? If you have the tendency towards solitude, being a lone ranger, you need community. It's a danger to isolate. But let me also share this. If you have no solitude and time alone with God, community could be a danger for you because you're looking for fulfillment in others in what God wants to fulfill in your life. And you want to bring something to the potluck to share, right? So those hindrances of unity... Um, may we never forget. And you know what? That's why I love the church. People say, well, isn't the church filled with hypocrites? Why don't you come join us? You know, <laughs> it'll be a great thing because it's a picture of God's grace. If we were all perfect people, it would not be a picture of God. The, this would not be a picture of the New Testament, the covenant. This would not be a picture of the gospel if we were all perfect. Because we wouldn't need Christ. We wouldn't need a savior. We are here because we're not perfect. And it's no excuse to live a sinful life and to be prideful and do whatever we want to do. But because of that, I am so blessed and, and thankful that we have a body of Christ we could gather together. You know, like I said, people are checking out of the church. There's this one young man that I know that 
just kind of grieved me where he was just ready to leave the, the, the church. And he said, I still, you know, I still believe in Jesus, but I'm ready to leave the church. And he was telling me about this. And I sat down with him. I said, let me tell you why I love the church. I love the church because there are hypocrites. It's not a perfect club. If this were a perfect club, guess what? I wouldn't belong in it. I would be excluded. I would feel like I'm an outcast. I can't go near those people. And I'm not saying that we're to be full-on hypocrites intentionally, but I am saying that it's a place where there's grace. This should be a place, if you live in community and you are a part of a life group and you get to know some Christian friends and you do life together, you will be offended. They will let you down. They will say things that hurt you. They will act stupid sometimes. They will do some dumb things. But guess what? So will you, right? So will you. And in the midst of it, we could say, you know what? I have no right to have a higher standard than Jesus who loves all, who forgives all, who loves unconditionally. I have no right to say that's Jesus' standard, but mine's much higher. (laughs) You could be a friend of Jesus, but not mine, you know? (laughs) Jesus wants us to reflect his love. The bottom line is this. Jesus made us family. So we should bear his resemblance. Jesus made us family. We should bear his resemblance. What is that? Jesus full of grace and truth. Not just Jesus full of truth. Not just Jesus full of grace. Jesus full of grace and truth. I'm blessed to be a part of of this family. And uh, it's a a privilege. And we should always uh, count it so. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you that you have called us to be a part of your family. Father, I I pray if there's anyone here that up to this point, um, maybe like a family friend has been invited to a family gathering, but isn't really a part of your family yet. Maybe, Maybe, Lord, they've been on the outside looking in and they're wondering, Lord, what kind of hoops they need to jump through and things they need to do in order to be a part of that family. And I pray that today would be the day where they just realize that all it is is receiving your grace, receiving the gift, receiving the invitation and saying, okay, I wanna be a part of that family. And if that's you, I'm going to pray. I'm gonna ask that you would pray along with me, uh, a prayer of trust in Jesus to say, I I trust you and I wanna be a part of, of your family. So if that's you, would you pray this prayer with me? Father, Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for my selfishness, the times when I have done things that I know are wrong, the times when I have done things to hurt others. But I thank you for the message of forgiveness. And I want to be a part of your family. I ask that you would come into my life. I thank you for dying for me. I pray that you would fill me with, a, with your spirit, a different, that I would be different, that I would be changed, and that you would help me to follow you. And even though I don't know all of what that means, I know that this is true. There's something that tells me that this is true, and I want it in my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. And Father, for those of us that have received Christ as our Savior, we are part of your family. Lord, we thank you that you've adopted us. Lord, we were on the outside looking in. And Lord, you didn't wait until we pursued you, but Lord, you actually pursued us and we thank you for that. And so God, we ask that you would help us to live as family.
Help us to live in grace and unity and forgiveness. Help us to be unified in your word. Help us to be unified in your truth. Help us to be unified in the gospel and what that means. And Lord, we pray that as we do that, we would live a life that is so compelling that people that aren't a part of your family would want to be a part of your family. So Lord, we thank you and we uh, are, are grateful. You forgive us, uh, Lord, when we come and we repent. Lord, help us to forgive others. Help us, Lord, to, uh, help us, Lord, to forgive others as, as we have been forgiven. So we thank you and pray this in Jesus' name, amen.